You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now you can turn to the book of John, chapter 3. We'll read together the first eight verses, and then we'll open with prayer. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are our rock in ages past, and you are faithful to your people in all generations. We thank you that we can trust you in your word to give us illumination and enlightenment in these things. We want to hear from you in the pages of Scripture. We thank you that you have communicated to us in a book. We are convinced that when your word is rightly preached, that your voice is rightly heard. And we pray that today we might hear your voice in the pages of Scripture, that you would speak to us and encourage us and exhort us and edify and equip us together as your people. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, and we humble ourselves, bow ourselves now before the text of Scripture and ask that these things may fall on receptive ears and receptive hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I was thinking this last week of how infrequently I use the term born again just in my casual conversation. You use the term born again a lot just in talking to people? Probably not. You might, in using, in describing your own salvation, you might use terms like I was saved or I was delivered, or you might use those phrases that I absolutely detest, like I asked Jesus into my heart or I accepted Christ. I hate those two phrases. Number one, because they don't communicate at all biblical ideas. We don't accept Christ. He must accept us. We are the ones that are unacceptable. It completely flips it on its head. And we don't ask Jesus into our heart. We repent and believe the gospel. But we use phrases like, I was saved, or the Lord delivered me, or I trusted in Christ, or I became a Christian, or I believed, things like that. But we don't often use the phrase, born again, just in casual conversation, even in describing our own salvation experience. At least, I don't. And I was wondering this last week, why is it? It's certainly not because I have a problem with the phrase born again, because born again is certainly a biblical terminology, it's biblical language, and it's something that we might expect to use simply because Jesus used it, and so I don't have a problem using that phrase or that that word. Or we might use the term born again um, in describing the theological truth of what has gone on in Scripture. We speak of regeneration. I actually prefer the term regeneration to the phrase born again simply because regeneration doesn't have some of the baggage that the term born again has. The term born again seems to be clouded with all kinds of confusion in our modern day world, not only with the culture, but also within the church. 
Many, as we pointed out last week, many Christians don't even understand what the term born again means and that it means regeneration. It's kind of like the term evangelical. Do you know what the term evangelical means? Are you an evangelical? You are? Do you know that Joel Osteen is an evangelical? And Brian McLaren's an evangelical? And John MacArthur's an evangelical. How does that work out? If John MacArthur's an evangelical, I'm certainly an evangelical. But if Brian McLaren and Joel Osteen are evangelicals, I'm not an evangelical. The fact that both of those groups of people are referred to as evangelicals is evidence of the fact that the term evangelical doesn't mean anything anymore. It means absolutely nothing, unless it just simply means one who is breathing, because that's about all that those guys have in common. Same thing with the word born again. Sometimes the term born again is simply used to refer to a very intense religious experience without any reference to a change of heart and a change of nature and repentance and faith. When I was a kid, and I think I was probably before I was a teenager, we had a family that our family used to hang out with quite often who went through a religious experience and they got born again. And I remember this was before I was born again in a biblical sense. I remember how disappointed I was that my friend no longer liked to swear and blaspheme and be mean and cruel and all of the things that I once enjoyed. And he now read his Bible and went to church and went to youth group and all of these other things that I had no flavor for, no interest in, no desire for at all. It wasn't any fun to hang around with whatsoever. Incredibly disappointed as a kid. In their case, it turned out to be very short-lived because time was the test and time indicated that after a while it faded just as quickly as it had come on and they weren't actually born again in the biblical sense. Now, in our study of John chapter 3 of regeneration, we have been looking at the things which cannot save us and that one thing which does save us. The one thing which does save us is regeneration, that is, getting newness of life. The things which do not save us are all evidenced in Nicodemus. You cannot be morally reformed and be saved. Moral reformation does not save. Tying up the loose ends of your life and making some spiritual resolutions does not save you. Simply becoming a better person does not save you. Changing the direction of your life does not save you. Trying to become a more spiritual person does not save you. Keeping the Ten Commandments does not save you. None of those things save you. Baptism and all of the outward keeping of righteous standards and traditions cannot save you. Becoming a person in tune with God in an Oprah-type sense does not and cannot save you. What is the one thing that avails for you? It is the new birth, to be regenerated or to be born again. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. There are all of those things which cannot convert us, cannot change us, but the new birth does change us. And it changes radically and it changes us fundamentally at the most foundational level. There is no greater person for Jesus to have the born-again conversation with than Nicodemus. You ever thought about this? Nicodemus, from all outward appearances, was a perfect candidate for acceptance into the kingdom of God. Perfect candidate. He was a member of the covenant community. He was a Jew, child of Abraham. Circumcised, he had the sign of the covenant in his flesh. He fastidiously kept and memorized the Old Testament law. He kept all of the traditions, all of the righteous standards, almost in a literalistic, extreme fashion. Nicodemus, from all outward appearances, was a law keeper, a righteous man, a teacher of the nation of Israel, a Jew. He was a perfect candidate for the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 3, in one sentence, sweeps all of that aside and says, Nicodemus, it's all for naught. You have to be born again. None of those count for anything for you. None of those things avail as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. You must instead be born again. 
Now, you and I might understand that if Jesus had had this conversation with the woman at the well, right? In John chapter 4. Here was an immoral woman who had had five husbands, and the one she was living with was now not her husband. She was not a Jew. She was a Samaritan. She was an idolater. She was completely outside of the covenant community and the covenant people. Immoral in every sense. Had lived a licentious, reprobate, idolatrous life. From all outward appearances, the most immoral, the most unsavory, and the most unlikely candidate for the kingdom of God. We would understand it if Jesus had said to her, you must be born again. We would say, well, of course he has to be born again. She needs to be born again. Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a righteous man. Nicodemus is a member of the religious right. He certainly doesn't need to be born again. And yet, the born-again conversation was had with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, just as much as with the woman at the well, needed to be regenerated. And that's why Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came thinking that he had all of his ducks in a row to have a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, everything that you are pinning your hopes on for eternal life, it is all for naught. There's only one thing that will avail for you, and that is the new birth. You must be born again. So that's where we're at in John chapter 3. Last week we looked at the doctrine of regeneration and other passages of Scripture Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 8, and there's kind of a confusing verse at verse 5. There's a phrase that generates a lot of discussion. You must be born of water and the Spirit. We need to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be born of water? And we'll get to that. But I want you to notice, first of all, Nicodemus' confusion. After Jesus' statement in verse 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, are we to believe that Nicodemus, a teacher of the nation of Israel, was really benighted enough, really ignorant enough to not understand what Jesus was saying? Some people would suggest that Nicodemus' comment was sort of designed to get Jesus off track, that Nicodemus was feeling the heat of the conversation, and he knew that Jesus was aiming this at him, and so Nicodemus intentionally sort of sidesteps the issue and jumps off of Jesus' spiritual understanding or plane of discussion onto a more physical one in order to kind of deflect it off of Nicodemus, as if to ask him sort of a silly question to make it sound like what Jesus was saying was a little bit ridiculous. Some would suggest that what Nicodemus was doing was he was sort of answering Jesus in the metaphor that Jesus was using himself. I think Nicodemus was just straightforward confused. Look at verse 10. Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? The problem is Nicodemus did not understand these things. He didn't understand. He genuinely missed the point. Nicodemus thought Jesus was speaking in physical terms, and it is almost as if Nicodemus is saying this. Jesus, let's grant for a moment that I really do need to be born again, to start over. How would that possibly take place? Let's say I need to sort of reboot my life and begin again on the right path. How, how, how does that happen? How does that begin? Do I, do I go back and step into my mother's womb and be born again? It's as if it's as if Nicodemus has completely misunderstood what Jesus has said, completely missed the point, and he's saying to Jesus, "Let's assume your argument is correct. Do I need to really reboot and start over? And if so, how does that happen exactly?" What Nicodemus was failing to understand was the spiritual significance of what Jesus was saying. That Jesus was speaking not of a physical birth, but of a spiritual birth. This is just the type of question and just the type of misunderstanding that we would expect from somebody who is lost. Somebody who does not have the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. He can't discern them. He can't understand them. 
He can't rightly assess them. He can't uh, appreciate them. He cannot sort of rightly divide spiritual things because he lacks the spiritual capacity to understand spiritual truth at a spiritual level. And that is where Nicodemus is at. Nicodemus is a natural man. He is without the Spirit of God. He's not born again. He doesn't have any spiritual capacities. Natural, unregenerate, non-born again individuals are darkened in their understanding, Scripture says, darkened in their minds and in their intellect, They live in a state of moral, intellectual, spiritual, and ethical darkness. And so you can discuss spiritual things with them, but they miss it entirely. And it's on an entirely different level, and they don't get it. Because they don't have the capacity spiritually to assess and understand spiritual things. So it's darkness to them. That is why Nicodemus didn't get it. Same thing happens in John chapter 4 in Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. Look at verse 10 of John chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Look at verse 11. She said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Jesus was speaking of what? Spiritual things. And the woman at the well, lost in her darkness, didn't understand at all. But where do you get this living water? You know what I mean? The well is deep. Jesus wasn't speaking of physical water, was He? Same thing happens in John chapter 6. You can flip over there if you want to see another example of Jesus discussing spiritual things with unspiritual people and how they totally miss the meaning of it. John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he had just multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the multitudes, and bread is on people's mind. He's discussing bread. He uses the bread that he's with There with the people is an illustration of a spiritual truth. He's speaking of spiritual bread, not physical bread. And how do the multitudes, how do the crowds that are gathered understand it? Look at verse 34. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. He wasn't speaking of physical bread, which is why he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. They didn't understand it. They thought he was speaking of literal physical bread. Same thing with Nicodemus. Totally missed the point. I thought Jesus was speaking of a literal birth. And Jesus then gives him some clarity in verse 5. Jesus says in verse 5, back to John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now here's the question of the day. What does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? It's a good question. I'm often asked by people. um, Sometimes we'll do a question and answer in adult Sunday school, and I've had people ask me this question. What does it mean in John chapter 3, verse 5, to be born of water and the Spirit? Because Jesus has already said in verse 3 that you must be born again. Now he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. What is he talking about when it says to be born of water? If you're interested in these things, you want to understand these things, you're going to have to engage your mind just a little bit as we work through some of the interpretive options that we have concerning John chapter 3, verse 5. Before we do, I want you to notice just two very general observations about the text and the, the whole context here. Keep two things in mind. First of all, what Jesus is doing in verses 4 through 8, actually 4 through 21, is giving to Nicodemus clarification on these spiritual issues. Jesus is clarifying the issue. So whatever it is that born of water means, it is something that Nicodemus would have understood. It is something that would have been clear to Nicodemus because Jesus is seeking to clarify, not further mystify the subject matter. He doesn't want Nicodemus walking away further perplexed about what the new birth is. So Jesus is trying to bring clarity. So whatever it is that Jesus means by born of water, it must be something that would have meant, would have added clarity to this conversation with Nicodemus. Second general observation is that verse 5 is a restatement of verse 3. In verse 3 you have truly, truly, 
Verse 5, you have truly, truly. Verse 3, you have, you will not see the kingdom. Verse 5 says, you will not enter the kingdom. The will not enter the kingdom is an expansion or an explanation of what it means to never see the kingdom. You're never going to enter the kingdom. So the parallel between verse 3 and verse 5 is there. So whatever born of water and the Spirit means, it is the same thing as to be born again. Do you catch the parallel? Whatever born of water and the Spirit is, it's not something different than being born again. It is the same thing as being born again. Jesus is simply grabbing some other words, some other analogies, bringing it into the picture to help Nicodemus understand what he meant in verse 3 when he says, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, with that context in mind, there are three options, three options of what born of water means. One of them is heretical, so we'll sort of deal with that one first, and that leaves us with two options. So let's deal with the heretical one first. The heretical one is that born of water is a reference to baptism. We talked about this last week, baptismal regeneration. You remember we talked about that? The baptismal regeneration. So, ironically, John chapter 3, because we talked about baptismal regeneration last week, John chapter 3, verse 5 is one of the passages that is quoted by those who believe in baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration, for those of you who may not have been here, is the belief that a person is regenerated, that is given new life by God, in the waters of baptism. He can have faith in Christ, having repented and trusted Christ for salvation, but he is not actually born again. He is not actually given new life and the indwelling of the Spirit of God, a new life principle. He doesn't become a new creature until the moment of baptism, in the waters of baptism. And sometimes baptismal regenerationists, when they baptize somebody, when they come up out of the waters of baptism, will say, now you are saved, or now you are born again, or now you are a Christian, or something to that effect. That's sort of how they picture it. But they would argue that baptism itself doesn't save. It's actually faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit who does the work. But that must be accompanied by baptism. And only when it is accompanied by baptism does faith actually save. And baptism only actually is effective to bring new life when it is accompanied by faith. So the two must go together and you are regenerated or given new life in the waters of baptism. And they would quote John 3, you must be born of water. See, born of water is a reference to baptism. And if you're not baptized, you're not born of water. If you're not born of water, you're not born of the Spirit. If you're not born of the Spirit, you're not saved. So you can't be saved unless you're baptized. That's how they would they would argue that. There's a number of problems with it. Let me just give you a couple of them. We sort of dealt with this last week, but we're picking it up again because of the passage that is before us. That is a complete and total misunderstanding of the doctrine of grace. It is a complete misunderstanding and misrepresentation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And anytime anybody ever takes faith and adds anything to it, then you have a heresy. doesn't matter what it is. Faith plus obedience, law-keeping, circumcision, baptism, whatever it might be, mass, communion, ordinances, seven of these, 20 of those, five of those principles, adherence to the church, sign your membership card here, whatever it is, faith plus whatever is a heresy. And it's a damning heresy. It's a damning heresy because it takes the eyes of the person who is supposed to be exercising faith in Christ and places it on something that they are doing something they are contributing to it, rather than resting completely and solely and entirely in one person and one person only, and that is Christ. It focuses attention on what I do rather than what Christ has done. It is not baptism that saves us. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ that saves us. It is my identification with Him and my faith in Him which makes all that He did effective for me. You understand that? It's my faith in Him which makes all that He accomplished efficacious for me. So that His death is my death, His burial is my burial, His resurrection is my resurrection, His newness of life is my newness of life, 
And all of that is communicated to me through saving faith. So it's not baptism that saves. And to say that baptism saves you is to completely misunderstand the nature of regeneration. It is, in fact, to be entirely lost. If baptism were what brought salvation, why would the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 say, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you Corinthians? Can you imagine somebody as passionate for souls as the Apostle Paul saying, I'm thankful that I didn't have anything to do with your salvation? Which is what he would be saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel so that you might believe and be saved. It's the gospel that saves, not baptism. Paul wasn't interested in baptism. Baptism was important. Paul baptized, but that wasn't what saved, and Paul knew it. He said, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel, and I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you. Paul would never have said that if baptism were necessary or essential for salvation. Furthermore, if Jesus had in mind baptism, you know what he would have said? Unless you're baptized and born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You see, there was a word for baptism in the Greek language, baptizo. And Jesus would have used it if he meant baptism. Nicodemus was familiar with the ordinance of baptism, not the Christian symbolism of baptism, but baptism as it was practiced by the Jews. And remember, even as they're having this conversation, who's out in the wilderness baptizing? A baptism of repentance, John the Baptist. Nicodemus knew that. Jesus knew that. He could have said, you must be baptized if he meant baptism, but he didn't. He uses the term water instead. I was reading... um John chapter 3, the, the commentary on John chapter 3 in J.C. Ryle's Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of John this last week. Phenomenal book. Written in the 1850s. And J.C. Ryle said something that you may not agree with. In fact, you may be even find this offensive, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway. J.C. Ryle said, and I'm paraphrasing here loosely in my mind, J.C. Ryle said, generally speaking, Christians which, or churches which hold to the doctrine that baptism equals salvation are generally speaking the most wicked churches in all of Christendom. I happen to agree with that, and I will tell you why. There's a theological reason for this. When you preach and teach and practice and have people expect that their baptism is saving them, then they come forward and they get baptized. They're not converts because they're not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in their baptism. So all that that doctrine does is fill the church with false converts, people who think they got saved at baptism but weren't saved at baptism, and they're still lost, and so they still lack the natural, the spiritual capacities that the inner man needs in order to commune and fellowship with God. They don't hunger for holiness at all or righteousness, and they won't practice or live holy lives. So all that the doctrine of baptismal regeneration does is end up filling a church with false converts, people who think they're saved but they're not because they've never repented and trusted Christ for salvation. And then they backslide, and in truth, they never really slid forward to begin with, They find that they, quote-unquote, asked Jesus into their heart, but he didn't stick around. And so they end up living very unholy lives, and you end up with a very wicked church. With rare exception. So, what does it mean to be born of water? It's not a reference to baptism. Scriptures do not teach that baptism saves you. Scriptures teach that if you're trusting in anything to save you other than Christ, you are lost and you're not saved, whatever it might be. So that leaves us with two options. The first of the possible options is that the being born of water is a reference to physical birth. Physical birth, just the natural physical birth when you were born the first time. That, because water is sort of an earthly or physical symbol, it's an earthly or physical reality, also because if you've ever been around a birth when it's taking place, you know that it is accompanied with water. And I don't mean to spoil your lunch, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but physical birth is accompanied with water. So they would say that what Jesus is saying is here, you have to have two births, Nicodemus. Number one, you must be born physically, born of water. 
Number two, you have to be born also spiritually. The one birth is not enough in any circumstance or situation. There must be the second birth, which is the birth of the Spirit. So you have to be born of water, which you have, Nicodemus, since you're here, and you must be born of the Spirit. That is to say, that's why you must be born again. Now, that's not heresy to believe that, and I think it's possible. I don't think that that's the best understanding of it, and I'll tell you why. There's really no evidence in the ancient world that the ancients in Jesus' day, or anybody in that culture, referred to physical birth that way, being born of water. They didn't use that to describe physical birth. So I think there is a better way of understanding it, and here it is. The third option is that to be born of water and to be born of the Spirit are the same thing. In the Jewish mind, when the Spirit was accompanied with water, it always communicated the idea, not always, but a lot of times in the Old Testament, communicated the idea of regeneration, renewal, refreshing, and a washing and a cleansing. And so what Jesus is saying is, the the born-again that I'm speaking of, Nicodemus, is an internal cleansing of the Spirit of God. It is to be washed spiritually with spiritual water to spiritually cleanse the innermost part of your being. Nicodemus, what you really need is to be inwardly renewed and washed. And in the Jewish mind, the renewal was symbolized by the Spirit accompanied with the water. That the Spirit of God did this spiritual cleansing. And let me give you a text that I think would have readily popped into Nicodemus's mind when Jesus said what he said in verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 20, 36, sorry, not Ezekiel chapter 20, 36. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27. Listen to what Nicodemus says. Listen carefully. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, he's addressing this to the Jewish nation, and he is promising in the future, I'm going to gather you back into the land, and you as a nation are going to experience a conversion. That, by the way, is still future to us. So, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Listen. Then I will sprinkle you with clean water, and I will, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. What does it sound like Ezekiel is describing there? Regeneration. That's what Ezekiel is describing. The new covenant and the regeneration that comes with the new covenant. I will sprinkle you with water and I will cleanse you. He is describing what Jesus is describing. You must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be cleansed inwardly. It's not enough to be born just physically. You must be cleansed inwardly. As Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which you and I have done in righteousness, but by His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what Ezekiel is describing. I will take out of you, God says, a heart of stone. I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will make you new. Ezekiel's describing in the Old Testament the doctrine of regeneration. And that is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You must be washed. You must be made new. Entirely made new. Now, does that make sense? So I don't think it's a physical birth that the born of water refers to. It's simply a symbol or an, a word picture, if you would, that illustrates what to, it is to be born again. It is to be inwardly cleansed. It's not an outward moral reformation. It's not bringing certain things in my life into line. It's not, I'm going to quit smoking, and I'm going to quit drinking, and I'm going to quit cursing, and I'm going to be nicer to my wife, and I'm going to be a better employee, and I'm going to stop clocking in early and clocking out late. I'm going to stop all of that. I'm just going to sort of tie up the loose ends of my life. That's moral reformation, but it's not the inward cleansing. What is really need, needed by fallen, unregenerate, sinful creatures is to be made entirely new from the inside out. 
That is what the new birth is. Why is it necessary? Moving on to verse 6. Because Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, even if you could be born from your mother a hundred times over, what would it result in? Flesh. You can't bring spirit from the flesh. That which is born from the flesh is flesh. Your children are just like you, sinners. You're just like your parents, sinners. Your parents are just like you, sinners. Dead sinners. Because that which is born of the flesh always produces and always is flesh. You can't take spirit, you can't get spirit from flesh. If something is born of the flesh a hundred times even, it's still going to be flesh. It's still going to be dead. It's still going to need to be cleansed because you can't take or get pure water from an impure well. You can't get fruit from a thorn bush. You have to, from the, if the source is bad, then the product is going to be bad. And that which is born of the flesh, Nicodemus, is always going to be flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what man needs, what you and I need from, in our unregenerate state, or what we needed, if it's past tense for you, was to be born again. And that is to be made something that we were not. To have a principle of life infused in us, a spirit put in us, a soul, a spirit resurrected because we were dead. Because that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now notice that Jesus does not say that which is born of the flesh is a mixture of flesh and spirit. Doesn't say that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And flesh only. Not flesh with some spiritual capacities that sort of need to be fanned into a flame. Not flesh with some spiritual abilities that just need to be enlightened and sort of nursed along and really trained in enlightenment. But that which is born of the flesh is only flesh. And a fleshly man cannot be a spiritual man. A fleshly person can never be a spiritual person. You've heard people say that, haven't you? They say, oh, my uncle so-and-so, he never went to church, didn't have any time for reading his Bible, uh, never used Jesus' name except as a swear word, but he was a deeply spiritual person. What does that mean? That is just utter drivel. You cannot be spiritual if you're a natural person. You can only be spiritual if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, because that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. No natural man can be spiritual, no matter how devout he is in his idolatry, no matter how sincere he is in his religion, he is still nothing more than a natural, fleshly, fallen, reprobate, unredeemed, unholy, sinful, unspiritual individual. Always, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It must be born of the spirit if it is to have the spiritual capacities. And you can't take flesh and reform it into spirit. You can't do that. If that were possible, then we would, Jesus would have said, you just need to take, uh, Nicodemus, you need to watch some Oprah and figure out how you can sort of reform that part of you and become a more deeply spiritual and religious individual. No, Jesus said, you need to have something supernatural done on the inside so that you might be a spiritual person. Now this, I think, would have shocked Nicodemus. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Can you imagine how this would have sounded to a Pharisee? Born Me? Me? Now, a Gentile, I can understand a Gentile needing to be born again. But me, I'm a Pharisee. I'm righteous. I have a heart for God. I have fastidiously kept the law. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments. I have kept the traditions. I've memorized the Torah. I've done all of this. I'm a teacher. I'm respected by the people. I have Jewish parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, back generations. I'm a child of Abraham. I've been circumcised. I need to be born again? This had to have shocked Nicodemus. And yet Jesus is saying to him, it shouldn't amaze you, Nicodemus, that a man needs to be born again. Don't you know the Old Testament law? Don't you know what the Old Testament says? There's none righteous, not one. There's none who seeks after God. 
Don't you know that the Old Testament teaches that all have sinned, and the soul that sins, it shall die? And have you sinned, Nicodemus? Then you have a dead soul. And you were born dead. You were born in sin. And you have no spiritual capacities because the soul that sins is a dead soul. Nicodemus should have understood. I don't need moral reformation. I need to be born again. So when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus should have said, from all of his understanding of the Old Testament, you're right. It's exactly what I need. I can't keep the law. I am a liar. I am a blasphemer. I am a thief. I am an adulterer at heart. I have violated all of God's holy standards. I can't make up for those sins. I am a wretched man. I am a dead man. I need something that the law can't provide. That's what the law was intended to do. And so when Jesus Jesus said to Nicodemus, it shouldn't shock you. Verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Have you never gone through the book of Ezekiel, Nicodemus? Did you never read through the Psalms? Did you not understand the Old Testament when it says that the soul of the sins shall die? Why is it surprising to you that you would need to be born again? Then Jesus gives him a very familiar illustration, verse 8, the illustration of the wind. The wind blows where it wills. You see the effects of it. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just a common illustration. Jesus oftentimes used things every day like bread or a coin or a fish or something like that to teach object lessons. And I have to wonder if, while they're having this conversation, if the wind is blowing outside. And so Jesus uses a very common illustration that Nicodemus would have been familiar with, that of the wind. Ironically, it's a perfect illustration because the word wind is the same word in Greek as the word spirit or breath. And they used the same word for wind that they used for spirit and breath. Pneuma is the word. And they used the same word because the ancients would often observe that when somebody stopped breathing, they would die. So they kind of concluded that you understand you can hold your breath, but after a while you say, honey, grandpa's not holding his breath. I think grandpa has died. When if somebody stops breathing, they deduced the spirit had left them. They breathed their last, and so they used the same word. Now, they understood the difference between spirit and breath and wind, but they used the same word for all of those, wind, breath, and spirit. So Jesus is tying in a spiritual illustration, that of wind. He says to Nicodemus, you see the wind blowing or you hear the wind blowing. You see the effects of the wind, but you don't necessarily understand where it's going or how it's going. There is an element of mystery to wind, is there not? And you say, well, not in our day, because I turn on the TV and I see that it's going to be windy tomorrow. So I see the weatherman forecasting that there's going to be wind or predicting that there's going to be wind. Okay, put all of your meteorological instruments in the basement for just a second. Step out into the field on a breezy day and ask yourself, can I predict where the wind is going to come from or how it is going to come? You can't. That's the mystery of it. And a gust of wind hits you in the face. And you say, well, it came from there. Well, is there a big storehouse of wind over there? Now, I understand hot air goes up, cold air comes in. That's what creates the wind, all of that. I understand that. But when you're standing out in a field just from an observation standpoint, you can't predict the wind and you can't control the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Can you control the wind? No, you can't. You can't control it. You might wish you could, but you can't control the wind. Neither can you control regeneration. You can't control who gets saved and who doesn't save. You can't control it by creating a different worship service or a different set of music or a different environment or dimming the lights or burning candles or playing certain songs. You can't control who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. The Spirit of God regenerates those whom He wills and doesn't regenerate others. You can't control it. You can't direct it. If I could control who got regenerated, do you think I would know anybody unsaved? I would regenerate everybody I came into contact with. 
through whatever means it is that is given to us, but you can't control that. You can't direct it. Can you predict the wind? No, it hits you in the face, but you're standing on a field. You really can't predict which direction it's going to come from. It just, it just comes. And it just comes at you and you can't predict it. Neither can you predict who's going to get saved. I run into people that I went to high school with. I find out that they're Christians and I say, are you kidding me? You are a Christian? Would never have expected that. Yeah, God saved me on such and such a date and now I'm married and here I am and I'm going to church and unbelievable. Last time I saw you, you were a druggy, drunkard, and immoral individual, and now God has saved you. You know what they say? You got saved? And you're a pastor? Are you kidding me? Nobody would have predicted that. Do you think anybody predicted Saul of Tarsus getting saved? No way. Do you think anybody predicted John Newton, this blasphemous slave trader, getting saved? Nobody could have seen that coming. You can't predict regeneration. It's the work of the Spirit of God. There's a mystery to it. We can't control it. We can't predict it. Let me ask you a third question. Is it possible for the wind to blow and for you not to feel the effects of it? If you're standing out in a field, you're going to do what? You're going to see the grass moving. You're going to see the leaves moving. You're going to hear the wind blowing. You're going to feel it on your face. Neither is it possible for somebody to get saved, to get regenerated, and there not to be effects of it. That's the point. Nicodemus, you may not understand all about the wind or all about the workings of the Spirit. You can't direct it. You can't control it. You can't predict it. But you can tell when the Spirit of God is there and He's doing a work. I said last week, if you've never been born again, or if you're not sure if you've been born again, you probably aren't. Why? Because you don't pass from death into life unaware. You're not, you don't pass from darkness into light and not be aware of it. So when you see somebody who all of a sudden hungers for holiness and righteousness and loves truth and loves the Word of God and loves the people of God and all of their affections have changed and now all of a sudden they, they hate sin in themselves and in other people and everywhere they see it and they hate the effects of sin, when you see that, you know you're dealing with somebody who has been born again. But if those evidences and those fruits are not present, you have no reason to think that the individual has been born again. They may have asked Jesus into their heart. They may have accepted Christ. They may have gone forward. But here's the point of verse 8. If you're standing out in a field and you don't see the leaves moving, you don't see the grass moving, you don't feel the effects of the wind on your face, you have no reason to believe that the wind is blowing. And if you're standing in a church next to somebody who gives utterly no evidence whatsoever that they're born again, you're probably dealing with somebody who has not been born again. Why? Because when you're born again, there are effects of it. You may not be able to predict the movement of the Spirit. You may not be able to control the movement of the Spirit. But you can identify the movement of the Spirit by the effects of regeneration. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word, that these things for us are so clear. Even as we have discussed some difficult things here this morning, we trust that You will make these things clear to us. And Father, we pray that none of these words may have fallen on deaf ears, hard hearts, or unregenerate minds, that You would be pleased to draw us and make us more into the image of Christ, We pray that you would give us a measure of your spirit, greater measure of your spirit, and conform us to the image of Christ. For his glory we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.